Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, December the 6th. Happy Advent to all of you, and also happy commemoration of St. Nicholas on this day the 4th century bishop that we remember often as one who maybe was at the Council of Nicaea. We also know the traditions that are there, but he was an ardent confessor of the truth of our triune God and the Word and connected it to mercy. And that is something that we point our hearts to during this Advent season, knowing our Lord is coming, our Lord has come, and we live in that joy of service to Him and in service and love to others. And in that memory of him, we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true word of God as we start a new book. Yes, exciting. We just got done with Song of Songs, which was quite a challenge, but we were very blessed by all of our guests to point us to God's love for the church. And it continues today as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, here's a little bit of a a warning to everybody. We'll be in Matthew a long time, at least in perspective of us here on Thy Strong Word. Actually, from here now in Advent all the way to Easter. So we will slow down, meditate, read, mark, and inwardly digest the riches of this blessed gospel. So hold on tight. Actually, you don't have to hold on tight at all because we're going slow. But here we go for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome Rev. Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, Emeritus Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And also, for our purposes here, we are greatly blessed because he is the author of the three volumes of the Concordia Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Gibbs, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you so much, Brady. It's a pleasure to hear your voice and uh, to be with you on the program. Dr. Gibbs, this is our first time together. You, you've been on KFU a lot during your career, but this is our first time together. So can you spend a few moments introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure, I can say a little bit. Um, well, I, I sometimes like to think that I, uh, in my own person, embody the best of Missouri Synod ecumenism. And what I mean by that is that I started studying at the seminary when it was in Springfield, and I graduated from the seminary at Fort Wayne, and I taught at the seminary in St. Louis. Okay, sure. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I've spent my entire career in uh, pastoral ministry uh, for the Synod. Uh, Renee and I lived in northwestern Oregon for 10 years, uh, my first call out of the par- out of the seminary there, and then I did some graduate work, and then I was called to teach uh, New Testament at uh, St. Louis Seminary in 1992. Hmm. Uh, and that was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, and um, then in 2020, so just last a year ago, this past summer, uh, I retired from active service on the faculty. So um, it's been a wonderful uh, experience. And along the way, I had the opportunity to study the Gospel of Matthew and uh, it's been a great love of mine. And uh, here we are in the advent of 2021. And, and, and Dr. Gibbs, you've done quite a bit of work in life ministries throughout your career, you and your wife. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, um, just a little bit. Uh, my wife, Renee, whom you know, uh, is uh, really a very um, 
she's a very positive person. She's a kind of a natural born leader. And, uh, I think her commitments to the truth about the sanctity of life, uh, have always led her in those directions for many years. Um, and, uh, of course I'm a Missouri Synod pastor, so I believe the same things that she does. And so together uh, we had great opportunities, uh, at the seminary, uh, we helped uh, guide the, the life team, as we call it, the student organization that um, tries to center itself in the gospel and then in that gospel orientation to reach out to equip the seminary community and other people to affirm life in all of its ages and stages. And um, Renee was actually a, a member of the board of directors of Lutherans for Life National Board. Mm for a number of years, uh, and now she still remains very active in our local St. Louis area. So yeah, it was just a, kind of a natural thing that we did, and uh, and it was uh, another blessing uh, being part of the faculty uh, there at Concordia St. Louis. Well, and, and this is a reminder to our listeners to pray for the sanctity of life, and not as a, a, a political move, but to show that the Lord values all life around the nations and all people which is what we do as well. And that's something that's very important right. to us in, in the, the, the Christian church, but also the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And if you ever have more information, just go to lcms.org, look up Life Ministries and the great things that our Lord is doing through God's people. Um, and, and Pastor, on that note, uh, as we begin our time, can you begin our time and ask the Lord's blessings on our study in prayer? Yep, I'll be glad to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which is filled with your son, Jesus, who is for us and for all people. And we thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and uh, ask you to bless this uh, study that thy strong word will undertake. Uh, bless also the things that we say today, that it might encourage listeners and uh, point us all to faith in your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we have a long time to be able to do this, but also here's the opportunity to ask any question that you wish and send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Now, Dr. Gibbs, we, we've been doing this traditionally um, since I started at least, is that we've started a new book. I realized that I might try to fit too much into one program that you lose a lot of the main themes that helps us interpret the rest. So that's why we start with just a, a broad overview. Of course, there's 28 chapters worth, which is quite a bit to swallow at times. Um, but right. we wanted to look at it with the very bare basics and then get some overall themes. So in your commentary, you talk about a number of things, audience, the intention, but I want to start with even more basics. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Well, that's a good question, Brady. And I would say, uh, I would give an answer that's a traditional one. But let me also quickly say that it's one that we can't actually prove and that we don't have to. I'll explain that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, the tradition of the church goes back a long way. Uh, and and uh, all the information that we know uh, indicates that it was the tax collector is there in Capernaum, whom uh, Jesus called from his tax office to follow him. In uh, Mark and Luke, as you know, that tax collector is named Levi, uh, given the custom of not a few Jewish men having more than one name, like Simon Peter or Thomas Didymus. 
uh, Matthew gives us the other name. The Gospel of Matthew gives us the name Matthew. And so I think a strong case can be made that it was actually that tax collector uh, whom Jesus called, who became the human author of what is our first gospel in our New Testament. Uh, now, I said that we can't actually prove that, and the reason I say that is because when you read the Gospel of Matthew, the, the gospel itself nowhere claims a particular human author, right? So it's not like when Paul writes a letter and he says, I, Paul, you know, that kind of settles it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think it, it is important to say that uh, the best guess and the informed guess and the traditional answer is that Matthew, the tax collector, wrote this first gospel in our four, uh, as they're ordered in our Bibles. Um, but we can't actually prove that. Uh, uh, again, I think it's likely it's the view that I hold. Um, but someone, some faithful uh, disciple was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that gospel, and I think it was Matthew, the tax collector. And so if we were to look at that in the same light, what is the time range and where possibly did this apostle write this uh, uh, letter or this gospel? Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, and again, here we're forced to make kind of careful uh, and I might call them educated guesses. Um, the Lord Jesus is uh, crucified and raised from the dead, ascends into heaven somewhere around the year 30 or maybe the year 33, as we would number the calendar years. Um, and then um, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman invasion uh, that was uh, their successful effort to squash the rebellion of the Jewish people against Rome. That happens in 70 AD, so there's a period of about 40 years in there. So the question is really, was Matthew written before AD 70 or after AD 70? And uh, one thing I want to say here is that it kind of depends on the reasons why a person gives their answer. Um, I would say and suggest that we have many reasons to think that Matthew was probably written in the very late 40s or maybe the early to mid 50s of that first century, the first Christian century, as we might call it. Um, Some people would argue that it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, And I have no quarrel with that, but it depends on why they reached that answer. And that kind of would get us into maybe too many weeds. (laughs) So it's somewhere in that time period. Again, I I would advocate for a a somewhat earlier date, uh, maybe in the 50s. Um, And uh, but we don't know how long St. Matthew lived, if he, in fact, was the human author, which I think he was. We don't have an accurate record of when he died. And so, you know, the Apostle John seems to have been the longest living apostle. He dies maybe in the mid-90s. So somewhere in that first century, again, I would argue for a date uh, probably around the mid-50s. Any idea of where? I mean, since we, I guess, I don't know how, how to explain that, but I know looking at a number of realities is where was this written? Right. That's a very good question. I, I think we can guess uh, on that one even a little less certainly, to be honest. Uh, we don't know where Matthew went. Uh the apostles at first uh, are all remaining in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem. Acts, the book of Acts tells us that. But then uh, after uh, James, the son of Zebedee, is martyred, then the apostles are scattered. Um, and we don't actually know where Matthew went. So where was he when he wrote this gospel? Again, if it was early, it seems likely that Matthew was still 
close to what we might call the Holy Land, right? And some have suggested this place, and some have suggested that. But again, we just don't know, um, and uh, it's, it's hard to be specific. So on that question, I'm actually, uh, if I can use this word, a little bit agnostic. I don't really know where Matthew was when he wrote this gospel. Now, Dr. Gibbs, as we look at this, Matthew is one of those, um, I think a lot of people, they, they've, they've read it because it's the first one of the gospels. They're like, well, what should I read? Okay, the first one is there. And I really like right. how you start your commentary by te- speaking about the audience, maybe the intentions of this. And maybe that goes into general themes. I'm not sure, but I really was intrigued with who is the audience that Matthew is writing to, which I think is a very important place for us to, uh, to start. So tell us about the audience, if you will. Yeah, well, we have every reason to believe that, that uh, the, none of the Gospels, or at least originally, were written as evangelistic uh, literature, if I can use that phrase. Um, now, can they be used for evangelistic purposes to witness to non-Christians? Of course they can. But uh, the Gospels seem to have been written to uh, and for believers to strengthen their faith, to um, flesh out things that they perhaps didn't know yet, or to reinforce things that they did know about the Lord Jesus and his life and ministry and his teaching. So uh, if we start there, then Matthew was written for a a believing audience, right? Um, Sometimes people suggest, maybe often they suggest, that Matthew was written for a Jewish Christian audience. And I I do think that probably he had Jewish believers in mind. Um, But... But on the other hand, people say that Luke was written for Gentiles. The reason they think that is because of the way the Old Testament is quoted in Matthew. But hey, guess what? The Old Testament is quoted a lot in Luke, too. See? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it was, he was writing for a church-play audience. Uh, there's Jews and Gentiles. Um, I also don't think that Matthew had a narrow audience in mind. Uh, there's no reason to think that he was expecting, even on the human level, that only certain limited numbers of people would read his gospel that he was writing. But rather, uh, the early Christians had a worldwide perspective. They knew that they were to take the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. And so I think when Matthew wrote his gospel, he probably intended it to be read, A, by believers. He, B, thought that it would be both Jewish and Gentile believers. Um, And I would like to think that Matthew hoped that his gospel would be read, well, until the end of the age, which is where his gospel ends. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, and so as we as we look at that, it's been. Uh, I should have asked this at the beginning. Why do you love the Gospel of Matthew, and why do you think it's important for others to read it and to digest it and to well live it, live it, or uh, believe in it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, I've really been blessed by kind of living with Matthew for many years. Um, the basic reason is, I guess, the simplest one. That is, I think that Matthew's gospel really offers to me a wonderfully, wonderfully clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his uh, unbelievable mercy for unbelievable sinners. I can say it that way. Uh, and uh, and yet he does it in a, in a kind of an interesting sort of way. 
sometimes I like to say it this way. Uh, Matthew doesn't talk, and to be honest, the Lord Jesus, his words in Matthew, he doesn't often talk the way St. Paul does. And what I mean by that, he, he uses different vocabulary. Um, as you know, in, especially in Romans and Galatians, Paul loves to talk about our justification before God. That is, God's charges against us are dropped by God's own work, and we are innocent and declared not guilty in his sight. Matthew uh, rarely speaks that way. The Lord Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew rarely uses that language of justification, the courtroom language. But on the other hand, in Matthew, Jesus says things like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the reign of heaven. And I think if you understand that rightly, that is, that to be poor in spirit means you have nothing to offer God. I mean, nothing. Jesus pronounces you blessed because all the blessings of the reign of heaven that he brings belong to people who have nothing to offer God. And that, that's such a beautiful way of saying good news, and I, I think just come to love that aspect of the Gospel of Matthew. It actually gives me wonderful good news. And so as you, that, that's a great tagline that I think I'm going to use throughout our, our study, unbelievable mercy to unbelievable sinners. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, that was free. Yeah, I don't charge for that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have asked for, uh, yeah, I should have asked for some no, uh, no, you no, copyright. You no, no, no. No, just, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. <laughs> so uh, speak, speaking of that, I, I, I should have asked this too at the beginning. If someone were to come to you and say, Dr. Gibbs, what is the overall theme? Like if you were to say, this is what it comes down to, the Gospel of Matthew. Give, it, give us a simple, I'm a simple-minded person. Um, and well, my listeners, our listeners are probably more better thinkers than me, but give us a simple tagline. I mean, maybe it already is that, but is there anything else you wanted to expand on that? The, what is the Gospel of Matthew about? Yes, uh, here's the answer. The reign of God has come into the world. The reign of God will come into the world in Jesus. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. So tell me more what that means. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, uh, and it, it really does invite us to think carefully about how we use words. Um, you'll notice, and my uh, hearers will notice, that I'm not saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the reign of God. Uh, and I'm doing that on purpose because a kingdom uh, in English, it's merely an English language issue, uh, it tends to mean a place, right? So like the kingdom of Belgium or the kingdom of, you know, France or something like that. Um, but in the, in the New Testament, and especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but throughout uh, the New Testament writings, the kingdom of God is not a place so much, but it's the kinging, if I can use an awkward phrase, it's the kinging of God. It's, yes, God is the king, and now as the prophets had foretold and as God's people longed for, hey, guess what? It's Advent now. <laughs> mm -hmm. The king has come. He has come back to his world in a new way to reestablish his rule, to reestablish his reign. Satan is strong and evil is rampant, but the king has come, right? So the kingdom of God, when Jesus, John the Baptist first, and then Jesus, Matthew 4, 17 says, repent, for the 
reigning, the kinging, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the phrases mean the same thing, has come near. It means that God, you wanted God to show up in the world and say, well, guess what? I'm here. And in many and various ways, through parables and actions, uh, exorcisms, and then in a beautiful paradoxical way on the cross and then from the empty tomb, the Gospel of Matthew tells us the story of the kingdom of God, the reign of God in Jesus. It has come. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. It will continue to come. And we look for the last day when it will finally come. So that's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. The kinging of Christ? Is that what you said? Kinging of God? Is that how you described it? Yep. King yes, of the God. kinging, the reigning of God. And it's always in Jesus. Right. Jesus, right. So right. he's the one who came. He's the one whom God has sent into the world. Uh, he is the only son of God. And so he is the king as well. And this points us to the only reference to the Magi in chapter 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Which, as right. I just, that came up my mind. Are there other times, you did mention a few, but are there other times where that really is clear? that this is about the kinging of God that comes to mind in, in the book of Matthew? Uh, yeah, actually, um, there's a whole bunch. Uh, let me just mention two, uh, and uh, I'll, they're in the words of the evangelist, St. Matthew himself. So <clears throat> let me first say this to Brady, that um, if you have a really good author, like let's just say an inspired one, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he decides to summarize things, like you, you say to yourself, well, I wonder what it was that Jesus talked about a lot. And Matthew actually gives you a summary. Then you'll pay attention to that, right? Right. And that's, Matthew does this fairly early on in his gospel, not once, but twice. So verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23, uh, is talking about Jesus' early ministry there in Galilee. And it reads something like this. And he kept on going around in the whole of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching what? the good news of the kingdom. So Matthew is telling us, what did Jesus talk about? Answer, the good news of the reign of God and healing every disease and sickness in the people. So Matthew's own inspired summary of what Jesus talked about is the good news of the kingdom. And you get an almost verbatim reference like that at the end of chapter 9. Uh, and that's uh, in both Greek and English, it's almost exactly the same. That's chapter 9, verse 35. So, and Jesus kept on going around all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the, guess what? There it is again. The good news of the rain, the good news of the king, healing every day. So, and then in the teaching of Jesus himself, so not all of them, but many of his parables begin, well, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God is like this, or maybe it will be like that, or something like that. So if, yeah, if you just did a word study of, even in English, you could just look at the word kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew, and you would find dozens and dozens of times that either the evangelist, uh, Matthew himself, talks this way, or the Lord Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, uh, talks this way. Uh, one another beautiful verse is Matthew twelve twenty eight, where Jesus has been casting out demons, and uh, some of the Pharisees accuse him of doing that by the power of Satan. Right? Mm -hmm. Jesus says this: 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then what's happened? Answer, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So God is being king. He's driving back Satan. He's taking back his world that always belonged to him. But evil and Satan and God's enemies have had far too much power. And now he's come to put things right. Now, I want to ask it. I want to ask it this way. We went through first and second Kings and we had Dr. Walter Meyer uh, introduce mm-hmm. those books, which, and then, the, and then going through the Kings was just such a blessing, such a historical account. Also so much Jesus, the more we read into it. And, and at the same time, we always are a little bit clunky when it comes to Kings kingdoms, uh, because we live in America and sometimes we right. are like, well, we don't need a King. You know, we have the people or whatever it might be. There can be kind of a struggle mm-hmm. with talking about, oh, uh, the kinging of God, the reign of God. So if someone were to ask you, I just don't get it. I mean, we, we, we don't have kings. I mean, how in the world are we supposed to see this? How would you explain that to a, a normal American in the 21st century? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, uh, the, the concepts, uh, well, it depends on the person, of course. You might follow up by saying, well, tell me more what you're thinking. That's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Dr. Kolb would but, say yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always, as Dr. Kolb says, why do you ask, you know? Uh, uh, but uh, assuming you're, act- you're actually ready to give an answer and the person is ready to hear, uh, I, I guess I would be willing to say something like this. Well, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to change the way you think. Ah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> See, God is not a, it's not a, it's, it, you know, the reign of God is not a representative of democracy, you know, which is a beautiful form of government that we have. Uh, and it's great. But, uh, but God is God and you're not, right? <laughs> and so uh, it, it is actually a kind of a entire world view, if I can use that phrase, that um, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, if he made it, guess who it belongs to? God. This is God's world. The hymn says, this is my father's world. And uh, we have to kind of readjust our thinking. We're not in charge. Uh, we're not nearly as powerful or influential as we think we are. In fact, there are enemies around, and apart from God and his saving action, his saving reigning, we are captive. Americans think they're independent, right? And the fact of the matter is, is you're not. You have a master. You have a Lord. And it's there's two options, ultimately. One is God, the triune God. The other is Satan. Take your pick. That's it. So, But Americans have a hard time with this. And so, yeah, you might just have to say, well, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to learn how to read the Gospel of Matthew, you're just going to have to change the way you think. And fair enough, that happens all the time. So, But I think you're right in pointing out that, that Americans have a hard time with kingship and kinging and kingdom but there's no getting around it. We, we can't, we can't take down the scripture's message to where people are. We have to try to bring people up to where the scripture's message is. If I could say it that way. Well, as, as you put it so well, we are, um, well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand as John the Baptist tells us, but right now we need to take our break. We are introducing the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew with Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, and we will be right back. Thank you. 
Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are introducing the Gospel of Matthew with Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, the author to the three-volume commentary, Concordia Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And to this point, we've gone through the, the main themes, the, 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 the who, what, where, when type of questions, where we know that this is about the kingdom of God or the kinging of God, that his reign. Actually, you know what, Dr. Gibbs, I want you to say that again. The reign of God has come. Do that whole thing you said, the, the main theme. Well, <laughs> I want to write it down. Yeah, I haven't read uh, it on yet. <laughs> it, yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, again, it's it's uh, kingdom in the sense of kingship, or or kinging, or reigning. So uh, Jesus announces that in Himself, John the Baptist first announces, and Jesus announces that in Himself, God's kingly rule, His kingly activities. Um, as the angel says to Joseph in Matthew 1, he will save his people from their sins. So, and as we say in the Nicene Creed, this is another way to get at it. Who for us men and for our salvation did what? Came down from heaven. See, that's what we're talking about. The, the salvation always moves down from God to us. Right? And the kingdom teaching of Jesus is announcing that that has happened. And our faith as Christians, it continues to happen through God's word, through his sacraments. And then on the last day, it will finally and fully happen again. So, so here, here's another way to get at it. And this may sound odd to people, but I'm perfectly willing to say it. And I can say more about it if you like. If you ask the question, where is the kingdom of God or where is the kingdom of heaven? The answer is, it's right down here. Because this is the arena, this is the place where the territory has to be reclaimed. This is the place where evil has to be fought back and destroyed. This is the place where salvation has to be offered. So the kingdom of God is God coming down here to be king among us and to claim a people for himself again. Well, I think, I think we've hit... That well, I I reappreciate the language that now as I I'm kind of flipping through the Gospel of Matthew here and just looking for all the kingdom references. So I'm really excited to be able to have that as a thread as we go through yeah, the rest of this gospel. It's the major, it's the single largest theme in the Gospel of Matthew. It's wonderful. Now, Doctor Gibbs, one of the I, I I can't remember if this is from a class I had with you or during seminary. Many had talked to me about how. The Gospel of Matthew is a great teaching gospel. That it's a gospel that appears to be there to teach. I'd heard this, and I want you to verify or say, no, you're wrong. Um, is to teach Jewish believers about, you know, the, the the faith and from beginning to end to teach. And I've used that quite a bit in ministry to to 
have people begin with the Gospel of Matthew to see the fullness of how it all connects in the teaching gospel. Is anything any uh, any insight on that? Maybe I heard wrong, but any insight on that? Well, no. I, I mean, I, I I think that you know it's true of all the gospels, each in their own way. Um, I don't know if this connects to what you were uh, thinking, Brady, but uh, I think it's actually true that. Um, for instance, if you just uh, pick up an English Bible where the words of Jesus have been placed in red, you know, that's red letter edition, as we call them. I, I think there are more words in red in Matthew than in any other gospel, um, more than in Luke, more than in John. Um, the reason I think this is one time I did a controlled scientific experiment. I took Renee's red letter Bible and I took a ruler <laughs> and I measured inches of red, you know. <laughs> um, Matthew has a lot of teaching. He has five major discourses, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, then the uh, sending discourse for the Twelve in chapter 10, and parables, and the discourse on true greatness, and finally the Olivet Discourse. So there's a lot of teaching just in those five big blocks, and uh, and then there are some smaller ones as well. So, um, so yeah, the teaching of Jesus, uh, his revelation— uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he goes up onto the mountain and sits down, um, some people suggest that Matthew wants us to think of him there as uh, a greater, new and greater Moses. Uh, I actually back off of that view, to be honest. I think he's there uh, just as God was on Mount Sinai speaking to Moses and to Israel. I think Jesus is on the mountain in Matthew 5, speaking with the authority of God. So we're not supposed to think of him as a new and greater Moses. I think we're supposed to think of him as God's son. Um, and there he reveals uh, grace and uh, goodness and truth. So, so yeah, there's a lot of important teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, uh, I do think that that teaching can be overemphasized. Uh, and I'll point out something a little obvious here. The Gospel of Matthew does have a goal, right? And it's not the chalkboard. <laughs> it's not the teaching per se. The goal is the same as the other gospels. That is the cross and the empty tomb. So, but along the way there, uh, and each of the gospels do this. Uh, Matthew does give us a stunning amount of crucial teaching from the Lord Jesus. Now, can you touch on basic themes as we flow through. So as we study this from beginning to end, and it, for all, all of our listeners and, and for me, when I read it, what, what kind of themes? We talked about teaching. We talked about the kingdom of God. Are there other themes that you would say we should look for as we study from beginning to end the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah. Um, yeah, th there's, there's kind of a two-part theme. Uh, and again, this is in all the Gospels, so it's not unique to Matthew. But... Um, in a number of different ways, um, the grace of God, the pure gift of God's life and forgiveness and mercy, um, Jesus, uh, he embodies this, uh, he heals the sick, he forgives the paralytic, he does this in so many ways. Uh, in his teaching, he often, uh, or at least at times, will speak about people who are lonely, uh, people who are poor in spirit, people who are infants, people who are like children, right? 
And and at this point, we have to be careful with what modern ways of thinking might do to us here because we tend, and it's not entirely wrong, we tend to have a kind of a sentimental view, unless you've been a parent, uh, <laughs> a sentimental view of children. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 18, for instance, unless you turn and become like children, you won't even enter the reign of heaven. Oh, there's the reign of heaven again. Yeah, right. And we think, oh, well, we have to have some sort of positive quality the way children do, like faith or sincerity or something like that. And the answer is no. In the ancient world, children are dependent, they're helpless, they're stupid, and they need to be taken care of. <laughs> right? That's what it means to become like a child. And, and you know that's the case from parallels in ancient literature, but also because the disciples have been fighting, again, about who's the greatest. Okay? And so on the one hand, it's a kind of a positive gospel message that you'll see it. Uh, poor in spirit, infant, lowly children. The good news comes to people like that. In fact, you can't even get into the reign of God unless you are helpless. Oh, oh, I see. So Jesus' gifts are for the helpless. But then the flip side of that is that it becomes kind of a a principle or a guiding truth in terms of how Jesus' disciples relate to each other. So there in Matthew 18, who is the greatest in the reign of God? And the answer is, well, it's the one who's among you like a child. That is to say, someone who's needy, somebody who's weak, somebody who's powerless, right? So in this community that Jesus gathers around himself, it's not about comparing and being more powerful. It's not about being rich. In fact, it's really hard for rich people to get into the reign of heaven. That's what Jesus says, right? So, so the good news that the powerless and the weak are the people to whom Jesus gives his gift, that has a flip side when we relate to one another. So who is the most important person in the Christian community? The answer is, it's the weakest person. It's the most dependent person. Uh, I'll just, without telling tales on anybody, Brady, I, in a churchly context a few months ago, I, I saw an email about parking, and it said there's going to be VIP parking for certain people. And I went, <laughs> oh, that's where the crippled people get to park. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's good. Or, or that's where the people who, who barely are hanging on get to park. But unfortunately, it was, no, this is where the rich people get to park. This is where the officials get to park. I'm thinking, that's not right. Now, again, it was just a parking thing, so it's not a big deal. But it is kind of a big deal. So who's the most important member, Brady Pettern, in your church? The weakest. And the answer is, exactly. See, and what a transformative thing that is. Uh, it means all the comparison games are over, which is really great if you compare and you think you lose. A lot of people... I'm, I tend to be that kind of a way I compare myself to others and I think that, oh, I could do better or I, I'm a failure or whatever, you know. The answer is no, that's the wrong game, right? And if you compare yourself with others and you think you win, that's the wrong game too. That game is over. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his gifts. He's the king. And uh, so, so I, I think if you keep your eye out for that double-sided, weakest get the gift, and then 
we turn and treasure the weakest among ourselves. See? That will that will go a long way, I think, in, in shedding light on some aspects, at least, of Matthew as you're plowing through it for the next 800 weeks. So. <laughs> right, right, until Easter, absolutely. And yeah, exactly. And that creates a whole new dynamic for me to think about the Beatitudes, which yes, definitely bring out that understanding of who's the greatest but the weakest. And I do think, yes. and I, I fall into this too, I have four children, and, and there are those moments where we have this like nostalgic view of children as if, uh, one, we were that way, and we were just like this, these great kids who had <laughs> simplicity of everything, which we didn't, I didn't at least. And, and for us to be able right. to speak it the way it is, they can't do anything. They're weak. They, they make horrible decisions and they don't know what's going on in the world and they cause a ruckus everywhere they go. And, and, and that's a <laughs> reminder for us that that is who we are, the weak, exactly. the poor in spirit. And it does, you know, and that's, and that's a very important piece for us as we come to the church. Not, I mean, cause we say it and we say, you know, I, a poor and miserable sinner, when we confess exactly. our sins, but yet we in our hearts still kind of believe, yes, but I'm growing up. You know, I've grown up a little bit, right? I, I, I'm not yeah. weak anymore, but the greatest in the right. kingdom right. goes back to five, verse three. Um, Blessed are the poor in yeah. spirit. I, I've said it this way, uh, that, and there are some passages like, you know, First Corinthians, Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I acted like a child, I, but now I put away childish things. So in our relationship with one another, we're not supposed to be children in that sense, right? We're not supposed to be immature and selfish and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But in our relationship with God, I never stop being a child. Ever. I'm always a child in my, in the way that I relate to God. And I'll compare it in this small way. And this is something I'm going to think about how, how I want to teach us or think about this as we go through this. There's a lot of times in life that you still wish you were a child under the care of your parents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I say that just, you know, obviously I love my parents and my in-laws just celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary and you just see the beauty and yep. the, and the grace is all behind that. And there's times where you, you look and go, you know, that was a good time when my parents were there and I, and I, you know, I thought they knew all the answers and in many ways they knew so much. And at the same time, uh, you, you wish you were kind of under their care in that same way. And that's really our lives right. in Christ that we are under yep. Yep. his care. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Gibbs for that. Um, I, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it says about Matthew, but, uh, if you'll allow me to read a very short Psalm to you, Brady, please, please do. it's Psalm 131. And it reads this, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. See? And that gets right at what you were saying. Pastor, as we, Dr. Gibbs, as we look at um, the whole book, what are some of your favorite passages? <laughs> you said we have five hours to talk? Is there, uh, well, we have till Easter if you want to come back on. We can. Yeah, okay, right, right, right. <laughs> Well, I, I do love the Beatitudes. We've kind of touched upon them. Um, and I think if you can read them and understand them in the first place as good news, as gospel, um, then that really helps set the course um, for a lot of other reading 
uh, I, uh, I confess that I love uh, chapter 18. Again, I, I mentioned that, uh, the, um, I call it the discourse on true greatness where Jesus has to, again, kind of upend the disciples quarreling and their thinking, uh, and, and remind them of, okay, you're a child. So that means that among you, the greatest quote unquote is the neediest. Right. And so live that way with one another. Um, I think that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Um, you know, Matthew has come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, that's in Matthew 11. Um, it's really beautiful because after he promises rest, the very next passage in chapter 12 is the controversy where his disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath, yeah. the day of rest, right? <laughs> oh, my. And so Jesus, uh, the punchline at the end of that paragraph is where Jesus declares that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that says both a lot about what Jesus has come to do, um, that is to give true rest, but also it says uh, who he is, because the Sabbath actually belongs to God, right? It, I counted one time, and if you counted all the times in the Old Testament where God speaks through the prophets, you know, the Sabbath is mine, it's my Sabbath, you shall honor my Sabbath. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's kind of putting himself pretty close up there with God, right? Um, that was an understatement, by the way. Uh, so, so yeah, there's just so many passages. And um, uh, it is true that Matthew has a strong emphasis upon the Judgment Day, Um maybe the strongest in all of the four Gospels. And so that's a kind of a sobering reminder uh, to be vigilant and watchful. Um, but yeah, there's just, uh, there's just uh, a lot of passages. But I, I do think that if you get the Beatitudes right in a Gospel kind of a way, then that really helps set you on a good way to read uh, the entire Gospel of Matthew. Now, Dr. Gibbs, one of my favorite stories that goes along with the Gospel of Matthew is we had a presentation when I was in on Vicarage of parts of Kansas, I did my Vicarage in Kansas, that had a lot of uh, Muslim Im immigrants that came in from the Middle East. Oh. There's one particular congregation in Wichita, uh, North Wichita, that they built their church and a wonderful congregation, and right, right beside it was a huge mosque that was built hmm. uh, basically over, over, uh, you could it basically just towers over it, this Missouri Synod congregation. And we uh -huh. went through a whole presentation by this pastor. And at the end of it, one of an older gentleman, boy, he had to be in his nineties. This is 2004, 2005 was a former district president of Kansas. You didn't really know if he was listening, if he was even able to comprehend what was said. And after the presentation, yeah. we all kind of looked at each other like, oh no, what is the world coming to? And he raised his hand and he says, I don't know what you guys are worried about. You know, it tells us that the church, the, the, the gates of Hades will never overcome the church, the, the kingdom of God. And to me, what you've been telling us definitely tells us even more of this kingdom reign that even if we don't see it, and this is Matthew 16 stuff. It, I think that really comes to a heart. And why is that so important? This kingdom reign, I'm going to go back to it. For our world today. Yeah, see, that's, that's a great, great comment, Brady. See, uh, we, we, we want to think it's about us. Now, we do that in a number of different ways, right? But we want to think not only 
that we're in charge, but that we're responsible for getting things done. Right. And, um, the fact of the matter is, well, here's a, here's a story you may have heard before. It's a story about a guy who went and sowed seed in his field (laughs) and, you know, he sowed it all over the place. Pretty wasteful, pretty foolish in one way of thinking about it. He sowed seed on the road. He sowed it on the rocky ground. He sowed it among thorns, and he sowed it in what turned out to be good soil. And you know what? Most of that seed never came up and bore fruit. But some of it did. Man, oh man, when it, when it grew and bore fruit, it, it produced a crop a hundred times greater or 60 or 40. Let the one who has ears hear. Okay. So what, that, what does that parable do? It teaches us that we're not in charge, that we can't predict how things are going to go, and that this is God's way of doing things. And so I don't know of too many sincere Christians who are lazy. I don't know of too many pastors who are lazy. On the other hand, the danger is that, oh, if we only could work harder, we could, and it's a very sincere desire. We could see more fruit. We, more people would believe in Christ. We could show love more ardently, whatever it happens to be. But see, at this point, you slipped over into making it about you, which we're part of the deal. We work, and God blesses our efforts. But see, ultimately, it's not about, and it's not about you. And that's, that's what the promise to Peter in Matthew 16 is about. I will build my church. I will build it, Jesus said, right? Mm. Not you will build it. I will build it. <laughs> now, it's on the rock of Peter's confession, but I will build my church, and I will give the keys. And so it's, and the Great Commission is the same way, right? On the one hand, there's a command, make disciples. But that command is bracketed by Jesus. The first thing Jesus says is, all authority heaven and earth was given to me. And the last thing he says is, I will be with you all the days until the age of consummation. So, so yeah, if it's the kingdom of God, then it's not the kingdom of Brady, right? <laughs> or the kingdom of Jeff, which is very good news, right? And, and when we don't know why things are going the way they are, the ultimate answer is that's because God is God and I'm not. As we go through this study, Dr. Gibbs, we will go through a number of very difficult passages and trying to make sure that we're interpreting them faithfully and leaving it, like you said, to God. Any particular passages, we have about five minutes left in our time, any particular passages that will be difficult and just to maybe pre-warn us to know that they will be difficult? <laughs> oh, I thought we didn't have five hours. Uh, yeah, no, there are some there are some challenging passages in Matthew. I, I would say maybe in some ways, uh, and it's because of their practical impact and import. Some of the most challenging passages in Matthew are in Matthew five. Uh, there's they're called uh, some sometimes they're called the antitheses or the contrasts, where Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you will not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, You have heard that it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, right, give to the one, go the extra mile. Uh, And and so, yeah, I, I would say, I would give you a heads up on those passages because Christians want to take the Lord's teaching seriously, um, 
But I think if you if you keep an eye on the context, and especially if you remember that the Sermon on the Mount begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the reign of heaven. If you keep that verse as kind of your, that, that's the, the bag you keep your foot on, if I can use that kind of a baseball metaphor, uh, then that will help understanding and interpreting, if not misinterpreting, some of those very challenging uh, little paragraphs. Matthew 5, it starts at verse 21 and goes all the way to verse 48. So uh, that, that comes right to mind. So. Good luck, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we have uh, three volumes here to be able to help us uh, through that whole process. You know, so I call you. it the unnecessarily long commentary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> ah, I love it. So, Dr. Gibbs, as we begin this study, what would your encouragement be for our listeners and for me um, of why this will be a blessing for us to study the Gospel of Matthew? Well, yeah, uh, first of all, it is, as we believe, uh, not just the word of man or the word of a man, but it's God's word. So uh, so that brings it a kind of automatic blessing along with that. Um, it's also a book that's filled with Jesus and uh, that we always need to hear over and over again. It's a challenging book, which we also need. Um, but, but let me give this uh, encouragement to, to you and also to the readers. Uh, excuse me, the hearers, and that is that people will just read the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, here's an interesting exercise for people to just sit down and read Matthew straight through. Don't stop, don't study, don't get distracted, but read the whole thing and see what that's like. And then go back and do it again. See, it's not that long as a document, um, but keeping an eye on the bigger picture uh, can sometimes help with uh, any particular passage. So I would encourage uh, the listeners to uh, just be eager and interested in just reading the Gospel of Matthew. And so Dr. Gibbs, we have about a minute left. Um, any last thoughts you have on the Gospel of Matthew and, and, and as we begin this wonderful journey? Um, I would say uh, this. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the reign of heaven. And having said that, that's probably enough. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, Emeritus Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, bringing us God's strong words, starting us off on the right foot for our study on the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Gibbs, thank you again for being our guest. Pastor Brady, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Saints of our Lord, the reign of God has come. He still reigns, and the reign of God is coming. He has an indescribable, an unbelievable mercy for unbelievable sinners, and that is what we have in Christ, and that's what we will receive throughout our time in this blessed gospel. And as I say, and as, as people before me have said, and why I say it, this all gift. It gives us Christ, it shows us Christ, and to know that we are in need of him, and he still gives. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. <laughs>